We're looking uh, with Tim this morning at the search for hope. And uh, we're going to start uh, in Luke, in uh, chapter 19, uh, if it comes up on the screen, the triumphal entry. So starting at verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks to the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Lord, we pray now for Tim uh, as he unpacks this word to us, for us, for today. Uh, Lord, be with him by your spirit, and Lord, would your spirit just help every person here to receive truth that will change the way that we live and the way that we look at the eternal perspective you have on all of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Can I add my uh, welcome to Judy's? Uh, It's good to have you with us. Uh, And as Judy has mentioned, we're in the middle of a series uh, about the search, the things we search for in life. Uh, And today we're thinking about searching for hope. And as we do so, uh, uh, let me ask you a question. I don't know if you like going to art galleries. Put your hands if you like going to art galleries. Yeah, a few of us. Uh, I enjoy going to art galleries. I don't always understand them, but I enjoy it. Well, eight years ago, I visited an exhibition that was quite profoundly moving. Uh, it had quite an impact on me. Uh, I found it very, very moving and also quite disorientating. It was an exhibition called Blind Light by Anthony Gormley. Now, let's just see. Anyone else go to that exhibition? One. Okay. We can talk smugly to uh, everybody else. Uh, it was an amazing exhibition in London uh, in which the artist had basically set up a room filled with light and smoke. And you were invited to go into this room 
and fumble your way around, trying to find your way around and trying to find your way out. Uh, it was fascinating because in the room, you, you heard familiar sounds. The people that you came with, you could hear their voices. And as you kind of walked away from each other, you could still hear each other's voices, even though you couldn't see each other. And then as they moved closer to you, saw familiar things. And as they got closer and closer and closer, you began to see who they were and their shape and all of those sort of things. But the reason I found it quite profound is because it gave us a little glimpse, I think, of, of, of something that we experience in life that so often there can be familiar things, familiar sights and sounds, and yet we're trying to fumble our way through life, trying to find our way out, trying to find our way forwards. And yes, there's much that makes sense, but there's so many things that are unclear to us. And if we're Christians, if we would call ourselves people of the light, sometimes even being in the light can be a profoundly disorientating thing. As we try, sometimes feeling very alone, to fumble our way forward, looking for something tangible to hold on to. Well, today, as we think about searching for hope, it may be that we are people who are fumbling around, searching. How do I go forwards? It seems so uncertain. Where is the hope? And as we get into this, a little experiment. Would you turn to your person next to you, say hello to them if you've not met them before, and discuss, what is this? What is this? Just talk to the person next to you. What is this I'm holding in my hands? Okay, any ideas? Any, any thoughts? Who wants to shout it out? What is this? Jug of water. Okay, next question to the same person. Is it half full or half empty? Let's see. Half full or half empty with the person next to you. We're going to do a little, little scientific experiment. Okay, let's see. How many think it is half full? Okay, hands down. How many think it's half empty? One, two, three, four, five. Do you know what? We, six. Okay, what's that? It's in the middle. Absolutely. Brilliant. Would you... Or both, indeed, indeed. Would you know what? We did this last week at Queensbridge. That means within the life of Riverside, there are 11 pessimists. We are a church full of optimists because we, most of us think this is half full. Next question to discuss with your neighbour for a moment. What is the difference between hope and optimism? Just discuss for a moment with the person next to you. Okay. I'd encourage you to have those conversations and continue them later on. It's an interesting question because I'm convinced that our culture, we often confuse hope and optimism. That it's about a demeanor. Some people are optimistic, some people are not. Some people are hopeful, some people aren't. Whereas I'm convinced that the scriptures teach us that one of the defining distinctives of Christianity is Hope. Over every other worldview, every other system, hope. And so the passage that we've been looking at this morning, we're going to focus on and gather from this five aspects of hope that I think are profound and very distinctive for us today. And a great summary is this verse from Psalm 130, which we're going to keep on the screen 
throughout. And it's this. The psalmist says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word I put my hope. For with the Lord there is unfailing love. So five distinctives of hope. And we're going old, old school this morning because each of these distinctives begins with W. So we're each W, you can see if you can guess what they are. And the first one is this. Christian hope looks weak. Weak. The story that we read is Jesus is getting on a colt. Hardly the stallion of a warrior riding to victory. An insignificant, ugly-ish little animal. But of course, for those people in those days, as Jesus organizes and then gets on this cult, their mind would have turned to their scriptures. Where in the book of Zechariah verse 9, verse 9, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This humble, insignificant picture of victory in humility, pointing to God's Messiah. And of course, if we know our Bibles, our minds might turn to the New Testament, where Paul says, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Weakness, shaming strength. Because if you're anything like me, we live in a culture where we have to present strength. And yet throughout the pages of Scripture, everybody that God uses is weak. Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a lying old man. Jacob was a liar. Moses was a murderer. Gideon was afraid. Samson was a womanizer. Rahab was a prostitute. David was an adulterer and a murderer. On and on and on. Weak people used by God. Shaming the strong. Peter disowned Jesus, had a massive temper on him. Paul had the blood of Christians on his hands. On and on and on. Weak. Shaming the strong. God's in the business of using the weak things of this world and the weak people of this world. Christian hope is weak. Which is perhaps why we celebrate so greatly Leicester City and all that they've achieved. Weakness, shaming the strong. At least for a year. And the Christian gospel often is ridiculed because it seems so powerless. But I want to suggest to us that it is in its apparent powerlessness is its great power. Friends, it is okay to be weak because you are weak. We are weak. As somebody said on Twitter this week, God doesn't want us to be strong. God wants to be our strength. And I was reminded of this recently as a friend who's not a follower of Christ asked me quite an insightful question. He said, Tim, as a church minister, do you find it hard having to give the impression that you've got your life sorted out? Because he said in jest, or maybe not in jest, because I could tell them some stories, Tim. But it was a fascinating moment as it gave me the opportunity to share with him 
that I'm convinced that one of the most powerful things about Christianity, so distinctive in this generation and in global kind of religion and worldviews, is that to be a follower of Christ means knowing that you don't have it all together. And therefore you don't need to pretend. And in fact, Jesus gives his most stinging rebukes to those who think they are strong and have it all together. Thinking they're right all the time. And the sad thing for me and my friend was that he had never, ever thought that through the witness of the church in this country. It was about good people doing good things, not weak people needing hope. Trying to give the impression they're sorted. We live in a culture of strength, don't we? Where politicians are not allowed to say sorry. Where business leaders are not allowed to say they got it wrong in case the share value goes down. And yet the heart of the gospel is weakness. And it totally unsettles us. Be weak with the people around you because they are weak as we are weak. As T.S. Eliot said, our lives are mostly a constant evasion of ourselves. No one has it all together. And as Jesus rides in on a cult, we finally see that maybe, just maybe, the weakness that he modeled is where we find strength. We don't need to pretend. As Edward Shalito said in a beautiful poem, the other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Christian hope is weak. But the second aspect of hope in these, past, in these verses is that not only it kind of looks weak, but actually hope wonders, wonders. The reaction to Jesus is very clear. Let me read it to you from verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Jesus is given the red carpet treatment, kind of laying robes and laying kind of leaves and stuff on the floor, the things you reserve for dignitaries. Marveling, wondering at who this could be. After all the miracles they've seen, the words they've heard, maybe, just maybe, this is God's king. Hope leads to wonder. A survey was done a few years ago of some of the fastest growing churches in the world. And amongst a number of different characteristics, do you know what one of the things that they all had in common? One of the things they had in common was they had a culture of celebration. Then you had a party. Because there's a discipline to it. It was attractive, wondering, marveling. Wow, life is amazing. Wow, praise God. Hope wonders. And I guess for some of us, in this room right now, we have lost the wonder at the hope of the gospel. It's become familiar, dull, mundane, dare we say boring, normal. And maybe for some of us today at the end as we pray, as we respond, 
our prayer might be, Lord, restore to me the wonder of the good news of Christ. That we might be people who loudly praise for all that we've seen. Can I be honest? For me, in recent years, just with the stuff of life, this is real. That there's a longing to wonder again at what Jesus has done. This humble Savior giving his all that we might be children of the King. Restore, Lord, the wonder. There's a great quote from author Paul Miller in a beautiful book on prayer when he said, When you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave his patterns in the story of your life. And instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realize you are inside God's drama. As you wait, you begin to see him work and your life begins to sparkle with wonder. You're learning to trust again. Christian hope wonders at this God of eternity making himself nothing for us weak, sinful, desperate, broken screw-ups. May we be people who wonder. So hope looks weak, hope wonders. But hope thirdly, hope waits. That verse on the screen gives a little profound insight into some Hebrew, which is the kind of language that the Old Testament was written in. I don't know if you know, but the word wait and the word hope are quite similar in Hebrew. Waiting implies an intention, deciding to look forwards to something. I am waiting, looking, eager, watching, observant. What's happening? And of course, for these guys, as Jesus rides in on a cult, they've been waiting long for God's king. Waiting for many, many decades and generations, waiting for one day, one day. And, and, and just cast your eyes down if you've got it, but don't worry if not. Let me read to you what they shout out to Jesus, which is a quotation from Psalm 118. I'm going to read the Psalm 118 version first, and then I'm going to read their version. Okay, see if you can spot the difference. Are you ready for it? This is Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hear that? And then, this is what they sing and shout. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. What's the difference? The king. They're beginning to see, maybe, just maybe, this figure is the king. They've been waiting long, but maybe finally now, we've been eager of seeing and now maybe he's here. But of course, but a few short while later on, they're left. It can't be him. As Jesus is nailed to a cross and all their hopes dashed. But of course, they should have waited even longer. They should have waited not for Friday, but for Sunday when they see the risen, humble Savior waiting. God always has the last word. And this word waiting reminded me, if I can be honest for a moment, <laughs> of some times when I was going out with my wife, Claire. And I remember those days where you would send a little lovey-dovey text. And you'd send it, you'd put a few kisses at the bottom, you'd work out how many kisses you should put, and then you'd send it, and it's gone. And what do you then do? Wait. 
And you wait for five minutes. She hasn't replied. Oh, no. Ten minutes. She hasn't replied. Fifteen minutes. And then an hour goes by. And now you're getting a bit nervous. And if it goes to next day, boy, the world's ended. (laughs) But then when it comes, what do you do? If you're anything like me, you count the kisses at the bottom. Four. I gave three. Yes. Result. I've shared too much. (laughs) But there's a waiting. There's an intentionality. When's the text coming? Christian hope waits. When things aren't as they seem, when things aren't as they might be, the Christian hope waits. With expectation, eager, observant, trusting. And I guess for some of us, the thing that God has to say for us today is, wait. Wait. And it may seem very hard and very difficult, but Christian hope waits. So Christian hope looks weak. Christian hope wonders. Christian hope waits. But then the next aspect is profoundly moving as we read in verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Christian hope weeps. Weeps. And there's two things to say about that. The first, you notice Jesus' posture here as he looks over the city. It is a posture of compassion, not condemnation. This city that's rejecting him, he weeps over it. In fact, that word weeping actually means sobbing, wailing. He is desperately compassionate and concerned for this city that is turning its back on him. Like a parent sobbing over a child making foolish decisions, so too Jesus weeps. And we live in a culture of condemnation, don't we? Our kind of public discourse. We've got to nail and destroy the person I disagree with. We've got to condemn them so that people won't even engage with them. We have to destroy people, not just their argument, discrediting their character. And yet here Jesus says not condemnation. Jesus is compassionate for what is ahead. Are we people who weep rather than condemn? But the second aspect to that weeping is... Do you notice how free and easy it is for Jesus to lament, to weep? The place for this sadness, this sorrow in our lives that our culture does everything it can to avoid. This ideal dream of a happy life where everything's beautiful. The search for happiness. And yet, throughout the pages of Scripture, time and time and time again, we hear cries of, How long, Lord? How long? Why, God? Why? Weeping, lamenting. And Glenn Pemberton says in a beautiful book, uh, he writes these words about the kind of churches we have. He says, I'm concerned for well-intended churches whose assemblies of praise and triumph only know how to pray for and celebrate healing, but ignore the chaos raging all around them. Must it be that because we affirm that God reigns, we have to pretend that everything must be okay or will soon be? Our contemporary praise assemblies are less likely due to our courageous faith 
and more about fear and an acquiescence to a culture that doesn't want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life. He says, it's not those who lack faith who lament, but those recognized for strong faith who bring their most honest and passionate feelings to God. When was the last time I wept before God on behalf of my own sin, on behalf of others? What about us? Do we weep? Lament is the hopelessness that refuses to give up hope. I don't know if you've seen uh, the video that's doing the rounds at the moment where Bono is in dialogue with Eugene Peterson. Bono, the lead singer of U2, and Eugene Peterson, the Bible scholar who wrote the message and things like that. If you haven't seen it, go to YouTube, just type in Bono, Eugene Peterson, up will come a little 20-minute video. Well worth watching. But in it, some fascinating insights from Bono about our contemporary Christian worship scene. He says these words. Why I'm suspicious of Christians is because of this lack of realism. I'd like to see more of it in art, in life, in music. Christian hope weeps for the brokenness we see in our own lives and the brokenness around us. With compassion, not condemnation. So Christian hope looks weak. Christian hope wonders. Christian hope waits. And Christian hope weeps. But finally, 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 hope wins. The reason Jesus weeps is this, verse 42. If you, even you, says Jesus, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Jesus knows what's coming to Jerusalem. And if you know your history, what happened a few decades after this, Jerusalem basically in a defiant pride tried to be rebelling against the Roman Empire. They're fed up of waiting for God to do his work. And what happened is Jerusalem was utterly destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. So destroyed that the Jewish historian Josephus said of, Rome, of Jerusalem, sorry, no one would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited That's how devastating it was. Totally wiped out. And Jesus weeps because they haven't chosen to follow the one where hope really lies. They've trusted in their own strength to win rather than Christ. And of course, what we know is this. Siding with Jesus may look weak. Trusting in him may seem fruitless sometimes. But hope wins. This is a difference between hope and optimism. Optimism is just a demeanor, an idea. Hope is concrete. Concrete. It is not, I hope so, but our hope is in Christ, the one who has defeated our ultimate enemy, death itself. Which is why, when we get to the very last book of the Bible, We read the most beautiful, amazing words that we've already reflected on this morning. Those words that give us a glimpse of why we can wait. Those words that give us a little snippet of hope so that even though it may feel weak at the moment, we can really wonder and weep for those who need this. As we read in Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. 
And he'll dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed. Hope wins. Which means that for now... In our frailty, in our weakness, in our illness, in our sinfulness, in our sadness, in our depression, in our loneliness, in our isolation, in our burdens, in the screw-up of our lives, we can trust that hope wins one day, one day, one day. Which is why the very last prayer in the Bible, three words, come Lord Jesus, because hope wins. May we be people who hope in Christ. Because that's way more than an optimistic spirit. That is true, lasting and certain hope. Let's pray. In a moment, the band are going to lead us as we respond. and uh, There's an opportunity for prayer as well. But I guess, let's just pause for a moment. And Is there one thing... One of these aspects that has resonated with you, that has connected with you in a deep way. For some, it may be the freedom to be and recognize your own weakness rather than presenting strength. For others, of it may be that just prayer, Lord, please restore the wonder to me. For others, it may be that sense of, yep, I feel it's right to wait. Give me the strength, Lord, to keep waiting. For others, it may be the heart of compassion, that, that weeping that we've been ashamed of, but now, Lord, we may do more of. And for others of us, it may be simply today, that desperate, fragile clinging to the hope of Christ that ultimately wins. And as we've done already this morning, you may find it helpful to hold open your hands as that symbol of kind of openness to God. And I'll simply pray for us and then there'll be an opportunity for us to respond in worship. Father, we are fragile people with fragile hearts and fragile lives. And yet, Lord, we know in you in all your weakness you are God and you became nothing for us. And so, Lord, we know you use the weak things of the world to shame the strong. May we be weak people then. And, Lord, would we find our strength in you. Holy Spirit, even now, would you bed that into our lives, we pray. For the glory of Christ, we ask. Amen.